In the year 1142, London was at war. The city had been the principal supporter of the regime of King Stephen, grandson of William the Conqueror, and his son, Prince Eustace, the Duke of Normandy. Alongside them was King Stephen's wife, Queen Matilda, the woman who had led forces which liberated the king from captivity the year before. The war was being waged against the king's cousin, the Empress Matilda, a title earned from her first marriage to a Holy Roman Emperor over in Germany. This Matilda was the last surviving legitimate child of the late King Henry I and sought to press her claim to become England's first female monarch. She was also a grandchild of William the Conqueror. In this struggle, her principal supporter was her half-brother, Robert, the Duke of Gloucester. Robert of Gloucester was Henry I's oldest illegitimate son, a powerful magnate and lord who, unable to gain the throne himself, now fought to place Matilda upon it. He was brave, bold, decisive, and, unfortunately for him, the narrator of this podcast would occasionally get excited and confused and called him Roger, as I did a couple of times last episode, and I'll try not to do it again this episode. Empress Matilda was married to a proud, boorish, and by all accounts horrendous younger husband, a man called Geoffrey Count of Anjou, and they had three sons, the eldest of which was a small infant called Henry. Whereas London was firmly a bastion of support for the regime of Stephen, the rest of the country was a confusing chessboard of mostly self-serving barons and landowners, tied together in unity or hatred by complicated dynastic marriage and fraught interpersonal relations. This had created a situation where who was winning in this war seemed to change dependent upon the season, and the fighting between the two sides had seen what was in effect a nationwide scorched-earth policy, as it had descended into small-scale skirmishes and sieges on the whole. England was a land that was contending with what appeared to be an endless, nasty, low-intensity war, and due to the fragile nature of the state itself, it teetered on the cusp of famine almost every year. London was not just the largest town in England at the time, it was a commune, which meant it was self-governing. It had control over who collected the taxes for the crown and also who administered the law within the city. Describing it as self-governing and using the term commune does suggest it was some kind of medieval democracy, but it wasn't. This city was run by rich and powerful oligarchs. The qualifications needed to hold any elected position or to choose who should hold those positions were all based upon wealth. And as such, the city was firmly in the control of self-serving men of means. You had new urban dynasties of residents, the Busherelles and the Off-Cornhills, inheritors of land and wealth within the city, who aided each other with nepotistic favours and were joined by others from the outside of the community who were now part of it, men like William Martell, a former Justice of London, or Osborne Houdiniers, better known as Osborne Eightpence, the Sheriff of London, and they were also joined by feudal magnates who became important in the city, men like Geoffrey de Mandeville II, Constable of the Tower of London and Earl of Essex. 
The year before this chapter starts, the city had seen the winds of war play out before their eyes. King Stephen had been captured, and the city had, alongside everybody else, been forced to kind of surrender to the empress, who rode to Westminster in triumph. And yet the city had risen in rebellion, suddenly bursting forth and chasing the empress out of Westminster. They'd placed themselves into the armies of Queen Matilda, King Stephen's wife, as they pursued the empress and had fallen upon Winchester, where after an extended siege of a few months, they'd taken the city. The men of London had despoiled Winchester, looting the homes and churches, and pockets filled with booty and lucrative prisoners to ransom. They had seen Robert of Gloucester also captured, and King Stephen had been released in return for him, and the war seemed to turn back to London's favour. And is it any wonder that they call this conflict the Anarchy? Hi, my name is Saul, and you're listening to The Story of London, a podcast about the amazing chronicle of this city. I'm your writer and host of this long and amazing journey through time, and we have reached the tale of the aftermath of the Battle of Winchester, a chapter all about the anarchy, about how internal London politics almost caused a second front in the war, and much, much more. Welcome, then, to Chapter 65. A London Way of War. Of course it was. 1141 had taught both sides one salient and important lesson. Battles were bad. Bad battles. Honestly, sieges were the only safe way to go. And as such, we find ourselves facing an 11th century version of the First World War. No, not with trenches, but with castles. Because the building of castles, followed by the besieging of castles became the principal method of waging the war from here on in. Castles were built to counter other castles. If your army was besieging someone's castle, you wanted a castle to protect your army in case somebody tried to besiege it. Some were hastily constructed in wood, others had time to be built in stone, others were just piles of earth, but there exists no full comprehensive census of the sheer number of castles and fortifications constructed during the anarchy, and it remains a source of some interesting academic debate and discussion. I think the overall number lies in the hundreds. But basically, this was an era where people experimented in castle design and techniques, and also experimented in castle siege techniques. Siege weapons began to be exploited and developed. We know in Normandy, Geoffrey of Argent was using some kind of Greek fire-throwing machine, and it is generally assumed that sometime round about the 12th centuries, trebuchets began to become fashionable, and everybody loves a good trebuchet. I'm not saying England invented it, far from it, but I'm sure that if you're going to see a period in English history that involved lots of trebuchets, I think we're getting to it about now. 
However, we start the next stage of the war in London and the Church Council of Westminster held in 1142. This was a church council gathered under the auspices of Henry, the Bishop of Winchester. Henry, King Stephen's brother, by now struck an ambiguous character. He was easily one of the most important clerics in England, and not just because of his relationship to the king. Henry of Bois was Bishop of Winchester while also being the abbot of Glastonbury Abbey and had also been appointed a papal legate by Pope Innocent II. He was quite powerful in his own right. Some historians believe he was actually, in terms of real politic, more powerful than the Archbishop of Canterbury. The gathering at Westminster he summoned was in some ways could be seen as the first indirect peace talks. As a church council, it would include both those church types who supported King Stephen and those church types who supported Queen Matilda, who had now established herself over in Oxford, which was a pretty bold move for her, being as it was the most easterly of her faction's towns in this part of England. Included at this meeting in Westminster was the new Bishop of London, Robert di Sigello, another Italian, like the last Bishop, Anselm of St. Seba, who I covered a couple of chapters ago, had been elevated to Bishop and then seemingly fallen prey to a schism back in Rome. Robert di Sigello had been nominated by Matilda, but his appointment seems to have been accepted by King Stephen and... Robert had been a Lord Chancellor of England back in the 1130s and appeared to be respected by all. The council itself had been an interesting event. King Stephen had used it to complain bitterly about his captivity and the treatment he suffered at the hand of his jailers. And then a letter was read out from Pope Innocent II. The Pope was clearly on the side of King Stephen. And then it went on to condemn Henry of Blois for not doing enough to help his rightful king and brother. Bishop Henry began seeking to excuse himself, saying that, you know, at the time he'd swapped sides, it appeared his brother had been captured and the war was over, and then a bunch of bishops allied to the Empress Matilda happily increased his embarrassment by pointing out that from her point of view, well, the Empress Matilda long had dealings with Bishop Henry of Winchester, from the moment she even arrived in the country. This was not a good look for Henry, Bishop of Winchester. Still, one of the major factors that came out of this church council was that a truce was declared between the two sides, at least for a short while. What helped it along was that King Stephen was poorly, probably due to the conditions he'd been kept in, and it was also helped that Matilda was also poorly, probably due to the conditions she faced at the Siege of Winchester. So both sides paused in their fight for a while and sought to lick their wounds. During the pause, the Angevin faction sought help from Geoffrey of Argent, the Empress Matilda's husband, and so begged him to sail over the channel to aid her. And Geoffrey of Argent refused. I mean, he was busy. Normandy wasn't going to conquer itself, you know. Eventually, Robert of Gloucester himself sailed across the channel to implore his half-brother-in-law to please come and help his wife. Again, Geoffrey said no. But he did agree to send a bunch of knights, a, a, a bit of cash, and one other new weapon in the war, a nine-year-old boy. 
he and Empress Matilda's eldest son, Henry, in the hope, quote, that on seeing him, the nobles might be inspired to fight for the cause of the rightful heir, unquote. As the months passed, however, and with rumours swirling that King Stephen wasn't just poorly, but he was dying, the king decided to change the entire narrative and regain the initiative in the war. It was time to attack, and I believe, as his most loyal bastion of support, the men of London, flushed with their profitable success at the Battle of Winchester, made up a large contingent of his new forces. London was marching to war again, this time along the Thames. Empress Matilda had made a bold statement by basing herself in Oxford. Time for Stephen to reply to it. The siege of Oxford was, by all accounts, a vicious affair. The defenders considered themselves quite safe behind their walls and taunted the royalist forces. But Stephen was in no mood for such nonsense. And apparently on September 29, 1142, he personally led a harem-scarum wild attack, swimming the moat to storm the walls. Alongside the wily armed forces of London, the royalists took Oxford and burned and mostly looted the town. Again, not saying anything or making any accusations here. But when it comes to a siege followed by lots of looting, this was quickly becoming London's trademark. Anyway, Matilda fled to a nearby castle and Stephen and his forces besieged her in that for three more months. The Emperor Matilda would eventually escape that December in a bitterly cold weather and thick snow. She apparently sneaked out of a postern gate dressed in white and crossed the frozen Thames River and got away. Meanwhile, Robert of Gloucester had arrived back in England with the knights and the nine-year-old Henry of Anjou and had engaged Stephen again. Apparently, this led to another one of those awful battles between the two men. And like Lincoln, this had almost resulted in total disaster for King Stephen. This time he escaped but only due to the intervention of William Martell, one of his chief and most loyal supporters, and as we established a few chapters ago, a former Royal Justice of London. He was a guy who oversaw the court case about the fishing rights on the River Thames. It was Martell who was captured as Stephen got away. And whereas I cannot say for sure the men of London were involved in the fighting here, having Martell there does suggest it's a distinct possibility. And as a side note, King Stephen would ransom William Martell, handing over a castle to secure his release, the only time in this entire long war that Stephen ever did that. For me, this is a measure of how important Martell was to Stephen and possibly how important the support of London had become. While the war carried on in 1143, it is the affairs of London that focused King Stephen's attention, and in particular, London working out all the anger they had about events of two years earlier. We need to talk about Earl Geoffrey de Mandeville II. He was now a crucial figure in the region for the king. He was Earl of Essex, but while he was Earl of Essex, he also simultaneously held the posts of Sheriff of Essex, Sheriff of Hampshire, Sheriff of Middlesex, and he's the new Sheriff of London. He was Warden of the White Tower of London. He was, in many ways, the power in the region. 
and people had reasons to distrust him. De Mandeville had gone over to the Empress Matilda quickly in 1141. She had made him Earl of Essex, and Stephen had been quick to confirm the position when he returned back. After all, many had gone over to side against Stephen when he'd been captured, and then they swapped back. So by itself, this doesn't seem to have been a sin. And yet Stephen turned on de Mandeville, and no one is entirely sure why. There was some amazing work by specialists into the study of this most fascinating of the robber barons of the period, and basing my opinion solely upon the opinion of a couple of these better scholars than I will ever be, I personally think that de Mandeville's actions had not particularly caused the king to distrust him, but they had caused London to distrust him. Think about it. We know London had, in 1141, the moment they had local support, risen up and attacked the Empress Matilda. And indeed, think about the situation those loyalists in London faced when the king was captured in Lincoln. They had supposedly two bastions of support for the king behind them. On the north side of the River Thames, de Mandeville and his forces, and he was based out of the Tower of London. And to the south side, down in Kent, William of Yeeps and the king's wife. London could well have considered that maybe the cause was not lost. After all, even if Stephen was captured, he had a son and heir. That was grounds to continue fighting. But de Mandeville's surrender to the Empress Matilda and his accepting her title of Earl of Essex, his fast capitulation, also left London on, on a plate for her. This is why they had to make peace overtures. De Mandeville had left London with her asses in the wind, and they had to backpedal and hastily make terms with the Empress, and that could explain away maybe why she was not particularly accommodating to them at all. This theory of mine suggests then that London had been willing to resist the Empress Matilda the whole time, but they'd had to backtrack because the man they thought would have their back militarily had sold them out. And it was only when Stephen's Queen and the forces led by William of Yeeps had stormed through Kent towards London that they were able to feel secure enough to do what they wanted to do all along and attack the Empress and, by extension, turn the course of the war. And in those circumstances, if this theory is right, yeah, I could see that London and the Commune of London would feel particularly aggrieved by the continual and growing power off de Mandeville, and especially have their noses put out of joint if he's now their sheriff, I think they started whispering into King Stephen's ear. And I think that whispering worked, because King Stephen moved on de Mandeville quickly, and at a gathering of the royal court in St. Albans in 1143, Geoffrey de Mandeville II was suddenly seized and arrested. He was allowed to post bail, and he did so, and the cost of his freedom was three castles, one of which was the Tower of London. The tower was now in the hands of King Stephen, and this time he wasn't going to appoint anyone as constable. He would run it directly, it seems. Meanwhile, Geoffrey de Mandeville II, well, to cut a very long story short, he seems to have resented the living hell out of this, donned a bandana like Rambo and taken off to the Fens to conduct a guerrilla-style campaign of bloody revenge against the king. And basically, he opened up a second front in the ongoing civil war. 
The full tale doesn't involve London directly, and rather than labour it, I'm just going to say de Mandeville is eventually killed within a few months, and that was kind of that. Only it's not, there's a small footnote. Geoffrey de Mandeville II was excommunicated during his insurrection against the king, and as such, after he died, he could not be buried on consecrated ground. During his lifetime, Geoffrey had been a generous donor towards the London chapter of the Knights Templar, currently based over in Holborn, and they agreed to look after the body for his family. Twelve years later, when Geoffrey's son had gained a posthumous absolution from the excommunication of his father, the Templar Knights formally laid Geoffrey de Mandeville II to rest in Temple Church, where his tomb lies to this day on the floor of that most awesome of London spiritual places. By 1144, while the war was going on, London was also getting on with its own thing, and its growing importance as a centre of political life under King Stephen was also seen in the fact that his brother, Bishop Henry of Winchester, well, he needed a permanent townhouse in the city now. Only, where do you locate it? Well, in this, Henry seems to have exploited something I mentioned all the way back in chapter 57. You may remember I said that around the first decade of this century, the then Bishop of Winchester had helped to rededicate and rebuild the church called St. Mary's over on the other side of the River Thames, a.k.a. St. Mary over the water, a.k.a. St. Mary Overy down in Southwark. St. Mary Overy was located on a soak of land that belonged to the bishops of Winchester. So Bishop Henry exploited that to build a new residence in that soak, Winchester Palace. This was to become one of the most important buildings in Southwark. And to this day, on the corner of Clink Street and Stony Street down in Southwark, next to the replica of the Golden Hind, and just around the corner from... St. Mary Overy, a.k.a. Southwark Cathedral, the remains of this mighty house still stand. You can still see the remnants of the great rose window, built by a later occupant, I should add, and the gable hall of the great wall stands, and three glass-encased doors that once allowed servants go back and forth. It is, as you may be able to tell, one of my personal favourite parts of Southwark, and it begins here with the capricious and ever so slightly dodgy Henry of Winchester. We will mention and return to this building many times in the story of London ahead. Meanwhile, the ongoing civil war saw the garrison of London again involved, and this time it was to be part of what appeared to be a crucial part of the ongoing conflict. King Stephen saw a problem about 80 miles away to the west and needed to act upon it. Robert of Gloucester had constructed a new castle just outside the small market town of Farringdon in the Vale of the White Horse. Here he had made it so it was, quote, strongly fortified by a rampart and stockade, and putting in it a garrison that was the flower of his whole army, he valoriously restrained the wanton attacks from the king's soldiers, who had been coming out of Oxford and other castles round about to harass his own side, unquote. Stephen needed this castle taken, and so he summoned his army to Oxford, including the men of London, and they marched out and descended upon Farringdon. 
The king ordered a new castle to be built to protect his forces, and the siege began. Despite the clear investment Duke Robert had spent on this place, the siege went strongly in the favour of the besiegers. They would use engines to bombard the walls of the castle daily, as well as shower the defenders with scores of arrows that quickly reaped a bloody harvest. An attack was launched, and while it was resisted, many of the defenders had been slain. Duke Robert had hoped reinforcements to, could come help lift the siege, but none did, and the defenders secretly sent to the king to surrender. Stephen accepted the surrender, and the Londoners within his army gained a share of the vast amount of booty and profits from plump prisoners they could ransom. Once again, for a third time, London had marched to war with King Stephen, and once again, they'd made an awful lot of money out of it. This was good. This was the London way of war. Let's have more of this, please. But while all of this was going on, Something else was happening, something huge. And while it did not directly involve London, it did involve people who were only one degree of separation away from London, and many of these people would go on to impact the story of London significantly, and as such, this event needs to be explained. And that event was the Second Crusade. The cause of this, the Second Crusade, was on paper just one event, the fall of Edessa. When the First Crusade had taken the Holy Land, it was not some mighty force of Christian knights driven to reclaim the Holy Land in the name of Jesus. It was mostly a collection of egotistical man-tanks who had no idea what they were doing, who accidentally stumbled into the region and managed to find a unique set of circumstances where all the local Muslims in the region were super busy killing each other, which allowed them to take Jerusalem and then immediately fall out with one another. Along the way, several of the crusaders had stopped to kind of claim small slivers of land, and like early medieval pirates had screamed, ah, this be free real estate. And what we ended up with was a bunch of small, just jointed Christian nation-states in the region who were just as willing to go to war with one another as they were with the surrounding Muslims. Unluckily for them, when these guys had taken Jerusalem, the wholesale slaughter of thousands of innocent men, women and children in the great mosque of Jerusalem had actually united the divergent Muslim nations around them against the Crusaders. And as such, they'd been kind of holding on for dear life since then. And then one of these little Crusader states, Edessa, fell to the Muslims. And the other nations of Rima, led by Jerusalem, screamed for help. Jerusalem at the time was ruled by Queen Melisande, whose late husband had been King Folk of Jerusalem, who also happened to be the father of Geoffrey of Anjou, who was currently fighting, conquering Normandy for his wife, and whose grandson was little Henry of Anjou, currently running around the English countryside in the protection of his not-quite-a-full uncle-in-law, Duke Robert. So the call for help would have seemed to have been well received. And it went straight to the Pope. 
Only the Pope at the time wasn't Innocent II. He'd died in 1144, and he'd been replaced by another guy who died about four months later. And then there was another Pope who came after him called Lucius II. And Lucius II, by the way, was not on King Stephen's side in the war as Innocent had been. Lucius took Matilda's side, but luckily for Stephen, he died. And by late 1145, the Pope at the time the call from Jerusalem came was a dude called Eugene III. And Eugene was a very mild-mannered man. And the 12th century version of a cardigan-wearing, kumbaya-singing, gentle Christian. Somewhat wet by the cut-and-dried political circumstances of the day, but he was possessed of a genuinely devout Christian faith. Pope Eugene had 99 problems, and one of them was that he couldn't actually even live in Rome. You see, awkwardly, the citizens of Rome had declared themselves a commune and had kicked out the papacy, and the previous Pope, Lucius II, had actually led an army to attack Rome and claim it back, but during said battle, the Romans had launched what sounds like a trebuchet at the Pope's army. Or if it wasn't a trebuchet, he just got it real close to the fighting because somebody dropped a large stone on his head, and that was the end of him. Anyway, Eugene III got the call from Jerusalem and issued a papal bull calling for a new crusade. Yeah, no, nothing, no, nothing happened. Awkwardly, Eugene decided to unleash his secret weapon the biggest rock star in European Christendom, Saint Bernard. Bernard of Clairvieux was the biggest name in European clerical circles of his day. A brilliant academic, a barnstorming preacher, a man of orthodox vision who strode church circles like a colossus. He was the man who was the driving force behind the explosive growth in the Cistercian order of monks. He was a man who created the rules of the Knights Templar and was a main patron for years. He was a man who the church authorities used to send out to take on and defeat heretics using only the power of his voice. Saint Bernard was the dude. I mean, let's be honest, if Ray-Bans were invented in the 12th century, he would have worn them permanently. And I mean, yet, sure, there was also the theory at the time that, in truth, he was just able to manipulate mild-mannered Pope Eugene III to make himself virtually Pope behind the Pope, but who cares? This was Bernard. He travelled into France, and there he set a fire beneath the spiritual backsides of everyone who heard him. St. Bernard created the conditions that matched those seen back during the First Crusade. Everyone who heard him wanted to go on crusade, and he travelled across France and Flanders and Germany, raising the support of all who listened. Quickly it became apparent that this crusade was going to be on a scale and magnitude way bigger than the previous one. Oh no. The Second Crusade was going to be an all-out, continental-wide war. This was Christendom itself answering the call of God. Seriously, you want to know how profound was Bernard's call? Well, I'm going to quote the man himself in a letter he sent to Pope Eugene. And maybe he's exaggerating, but if you want an impression of just what kind of man you're dealing with here, have a listen. Quote, you ordered... 
I obeyed, and the authority of him who gave the order made my obedience fruitful. I opened my mouth, I spoke, and at once the crusaders have multiplied to infinity. Villages and towns are now deserted. You will scarcely find one man for every seven women. Everywhere you see widows whose husbands are still alive, unquote. Wow, what a dude. And in response, the great and good of Europe and kings now answered the call to take the cross. Most of the great nobility of France went along, and King Louis VII of France decided he personally would lead the crusade, and going with him would be his wife, Queen Eleanor. Uh, okay, okay, the Queen was going, I'm sure that'll be fine. So, yeah, yeah, the King of France was going, and the Holy Roman Emperor was going, and, and, and a huge multitude of the common sort of people all agreed were, they were going to go. And you could tell this was going to be a fantastic crusade because to celebrate it over in Germany and other places, all the eager Christians got into their warm-up by starting pogroms against innocent Jewish communities. Wait, what? But anyway, where St. Bernard was not doing his rock star act, he also sent his people, little minions, to spread the word further. And these guys reached England. Now, it's clear that none of the main powers in England were going to go on crusade. Of course they weren't. King Stephen and Prince Eugene sure as hell could not leave the war zone, and neither could Geoffrey of Argent or Robert of Gloucester. But it is clear that the call for common folks to go on crusade was heard. And why? Well, think about it. Unless you happen to be somewhere that was on a roll of good fortune, like London, there were plenty of reasons to take the cross. I mean, let's face it, whatever you faced on crusade, it probably wasn't going to be as bad or horrific or as potentially as terminal as life found staying at home. And as such, a number of Englishmen took the cross. And they, maybe they would have, as per the new tradition, perhaps gathered in London at the Church of Holy Sepulchre, just to the north of the city, before travelling to their port of embarkation. Dartmouth. Eventually, these English crusaders joined forces with some Flemings and Frisians, and they set sail to the Holy Land. But most of them never got there. The story goes that as they sailed south in their own little fleet, they ran into bad weather and had to find shelter in the mouth of the Douro River, in what we today call Portugal. Having landed there, the English crusaders were met by a delegation of the then Count of Portugal, Alfonso Henry, who said basically, Hey guys, are you looking to fight some Muslims? Well, I've got Muslims just to the south of here, in a place called Lisbon, and they've been attacking us, and we could really do with some help attacking them. And, and I know we only just attacked them and had our asses whooped badly, but with your help, I'm sure it'll go fine. And besides, not only will you not have to sail the entire length of the Mediterranean to kill some godless Muslims, you can claim lands we take from them and stuff if you, you know, fight. It was a tempting offer. The story goes that the Flemings and the Frisians in the party were all up for this straight away. But the English delegation was still mostly, hey, we did promise we were going to Jerusalem, and refused until their leader, the Constable of Suffolk, got them to just go along with this. 
and so they did. They sailed up and combined their forces with the Portuguese and started a siege. And if there was one thing those English at the time understood, it was, you know, how to have a siege. And eventually, after four months, the Muslims inside the city of Lisbon said, hey, we're all starving. Look, if we surrender, can we surrender and say you win and you don't kill everyone and burn the place down? And the crusaders and the locals went, okay, sure, don't worry, we promise. And so the Muslims surrendered, and then the Christians killed all the Muslims and burned the place down. But, you know, that happened. And these Anglo-Norman crusaders, by the way, well, some did decide to travel on to Jerusalem. But most stuck around, and they seem to have come under the influence of the Count of Barcelona, who was organising another siege at the city of Tortusa, and the claim is that the English crusaders who landed in Iberia were persuaded to stick around and join in by a papal legate who also happened to be English, a man called Nicholas Breakspear. And again, the English crusaders seem to have got involved in a siege, and at this point, I think that's just typecasting. Meanwhile, the crusade itself, after several misadventures, had finally managed to arrive in the Holy Land, and... Please note, I am summarising four hours' worth of material into the next 30 seconds. Basically, Queen Melisandre met all these great kings and nobles and pointed out that, you know, the Crusader states were imperiled and she had managed to buy some time by forging an alliance with the neighbouring kingdom of Damascus, their only ally in the entire region. And if the kings and, and their armies could retake Edessa, that means they could... And at this point, the kings all ignored her, turned around and went, we should attack Damascus. And they did. And they all thought it was a great idea, ignoring the stares of absolute horror from the people who lived in Jerusalem. And they marched on Damascus. And they completely failed. And the whole thing collapsed in humiliation, recrimination, and absolute failure. And it started a civil war in Jerusalem between the queen and her son. And it caused King Louis of France to become convinced his wife... Queen Eleanor had been cavorting with her uncle, which upset her a lot, and the two were barely talking on their way back, and on their way back they called into the place nearest to Rome that Pope Eugene was allowed to live without the army of the commune of Romans dropping rocks on his head, and he basically advised them, and I'm not kidding, hey, maybe talk more and share your feelings, and that could help your marriage, but... Yeah, they didn't help, and they're heading for separation. And, and St. Bernard ended up looking really bad, and yeah. Of course it was more complex than this, incredibly more complex than this. But from the context of London's tale, that's the version I'm telling. Anyway, I'm getting back to London now. The Church of the Holy Innocents had long been a part of the western side of the city, but from round about 1146, it seems to have been renamed St. Mary's, and as per tradition, it then got an added bit attached to the name to differentiate it from the score of other churches also called St. Mary's in London. This one gained the name St. Mary's Lestrand, and in time, the road it was located upon was called the Strand, which would become a very important thoroughfare for the residents of the city. St. Mary's Lestrand back then was located on a different site from where the current St. Mary's Lestrand is today. It was originally where Somerset House is now. And it remained on this site until 1549. And the next year, over on the opposite side of the city, the East End was undergoing a growth in property development and rebuilding. And Aldgate 
The actual gate that separated London from Port Soken was rebuilt this year. Now, as much as one could say, hey, maybe this was done because, you know, there's a war going on and much of it's based on sieges, so they need to make the gates good. In truth, the work is estimated to have started 40 years previously. But it was finished now. Oh, and just because I'm mainly retentive about details like this, Aldgate wasn't technically called Aldgate or Oldgate back in the 1140s. It had originally been called Eastgate, which makes sense. And over time, Eastgate became gradually pronounced as Eelgate. And then about 500 years into the future of this episode, people started calling Eelgate Oldgate. And I've been calling it Oldgate since the beginning, and I'm just going to keep doing so. But, you know, I need to be pedantic. Yet the rebuilding of the gate did tie into the growth of Port Soken, that East End suburb that had managed to appear in, I think, the last five episodes. Queen Matilda, the wife of King Stephen and liberator of London, offered 13 acres of land in the region which she owned to Holy Trinity Priory back in the Oldgate region. And it was given to them to establish a hospital for the poor, St. Catherine's Hospital was to remain under the jurisdiction of Holy Trinity, but was long favoured by future queens in England. Port Soken began to grow, and was on its way to becoming increasingly autonomous from the city, especially as the White Tower of London grew and the people working in and around it also increased. It's worth just saying one overlooked factor about Stephen's queen, Matilda, that could explain her popularity with the City of London, and that was a small detail in her family heritage. I mean, it could be nothing, but for me it rings bells. You see, Queen Matilda of England, Matilda of Boulogne, was not entirely foreign. Her mother had been a woman called Mary. And she had been the daughter of King Malcolm III of Scotland and his wife Margaret, a.k.a. St. Margaret of Scotland. And that meant, technically, Queen Matilda was the niece of King David of Scotland, who was also the son of Malcolm and Margaret. But it's worth remembering that the reason why King David of Scotland held the throne at all was because of the actions of his uncle, Queen Margaret's brother, Edgar Etheling. And that meant that this Queen Matilda of Boulogne who had led her forces into London when it rebelled against the Empress Matilda, those cheering crowds were honouring an old, old tradition. Matilda's great-great-grandfather had been Edmund Ironsides, the king who London had insisted upon the land. The old patterns of London's history, the old shades of London's passions, echo and reverberate through the city streets. As I will repeat many times in the future episodes, one of the major themes of the story of London is that London's present is indelibly shaped by its past. London's history is always just around every corner, and the ghosts of London before walk with us down every street and linger upon every junction. It's a feeling that everywhere we go in London, our ancestors, forefathers and foremothers in time, if not in genetics, 
but our ancestors have strode before. And that isn't just an experience that happens now with so many centuries of history upon us. There in the 1140s, it was happening. The parallels between chapters 34 of this story and chapter 64 of this story were intended and deliberate and true enough. When the Londoners defied the besieging armies of Canute and roared in celebration when Edmund Ironsides rode to London to liberate it, they could never have known that about 120 years later, their descendants within the city would do the same for his great-great-granddaughter. But they did. The wars may change, but the ghosts are renewed and reborn. Oh, and speaking of that current war, the anarchy continued, and despite crusade and despite all, England bled and the sieges carried on. And yet there seemed to be a glimmer of hope. In 1147, Robert of Gloucester, King Stephen's greatest opponent, finally died, and with it, the last best hope for the Empress Matilda. She retired to Normandy in 1148. While she lived until 1167, she would never return to England, the nation who had scorned her. She had come so close to becoming queen but the high water mark of her bid reached the shores of London and were dashed upon its walls and never returned. And indeed, one could think that with the death of Robert and the leaving of Matilda, the anarchy would soon be finished and King Stephen would be able to soon consolidate the land around him. But it wasn't. There was a new threat to Stephen, now striding upon the English shores. And in 1148, the war was about to renew itself again. And that's that. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back again next week as we move on with the story. Um, I've really enjoyed writing it, and I will say and stress to people once again... As much as I'm a historian and I love history and I hope you appreciate how much I love history and the tales of history, this podcast is dedicated upon telling a story, a narrative. And as such, as I've often said, and I feel so guilty for, at no point do I offer an academic approach to what happened. This is merely a narrative approach. I will simplify, I will edit out, and I will try to piece it all together in what is a coherent story. So, for example, that description of the Second Crusade, I made that funny. Bare bones, it's accurate. There's a lot more to it than that, and people could turn around and say, oh, I think you've missed things, or they could disagree with my interpretation. Please do check them out. But history is, for me, all about the story. But there you go. Okay, thank you. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you next week. I don't like talking at the end of episodes, so I'll just shut up now because I feel awkward. This is all saying bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.